You want to stay here. As a matter of fact, you're highly motivated to stay in this forsaken waste. The prospect appeared quite attractive to you a moment ago. Now you listen to me, you pointed-eared Vulcan. I don't like that. I don't think I ever did, and now I'm sure. What's happening to you, Spock? Nothing that shouldn't have happened long ago. Transfer complete. And welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, almost as interested in minerals this week as the Federation is every single week. (laughs) And we're here this week to tackle Hidden Gems 2, the sequel to an episode we did like six years ago or something it's a very belated sequel (laughs) it was five and a half years ago and yeah gems minerals just need to explain my joke because that makes them funnier cam but yeah we did this back in july of 2016 with uh guest jara hodge from uh she's now the women at warp podcast and yeah we kind of broke it down we had three episodes apiece that we went to went through you know one by one and discussed You know, these are kind of the episodes that don't get talked about enough. These are the ones that are like really, really good, but they're not quite in the conversation when it comes to, you know, top 10 episodes. And and they often get overlooked. And I think they do deserve kind of a revisit as well. Yeah, I always think of like the episodes that you don't see people posting screen grabs from on the Facebook groups or anything. Uh, you know, just like that one where Q gives Riker all those uh, ladies uh, that just bounce into the uh, bridge, you know, like one of those top 10 episodes of all time, right, Cam? Exactly what I was thinking of. That's yeah. my background on my computer right now. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it, it, and it is funny. You're all right. Like, there was some I was going through when I was making my picks, and I'm like, it's weird. This is a really good episode. Why does no one talk about this one? And <laughs> I think there is maybe a tendency when you say hidden gems to find more of the obscure ones that maybe people think are eh, but you see real value in. But some that I picked tonight, I was actually really scratching my head. Why don't people reference this episode? Well, and we'll do a little bit of a twist on this one because I, I think we'll have some fun by going through these hidden gems and kind of think about like what series they might be applied to that is you know we've got a script for you know a voyager episode would it work in you know deep space nine by changing the names around or you know a few plot points here or there i think that'll be a fun way for us to keep delving into what makes these like really great episodes that often go overlooked but if cam before we really kick it off why don't i go through everybody's lists from our uh first episode you know five and a half years ago good please start with because I don't remember them. <laughs> I'll start with you, sir. Uh, you picked uh, the Counterclock Incident from the animated series, Jatrell from Voyager, and Prototype from Voyager. Uh, what were your overall thoughts like uh, as those memories come flooding back to you? The shocker there was Jatrell because I remembered Prototype and Counterclock. I remember um, very much championing Counterclock and you ridiculing me a lot for it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and laughing a lot about the um um uh, Robert April's wife's flower. That's what that is my most vivid memory of that. Um, but I do remember that really did start my love of prototype, an episode earlier on in Voyager's run, I think season two, that has a robot war. And I mean, it's so dorky and I love it. It's so much fun. Uh, next up, though, we have Jera's picks with the Cloudminders from the original series, In the Cards from Deep Space Nine, and Fusion from Enterprise. I think those are all solid picks, and ones that just, uh, again, kind of go overlooked. Even like something like In the Cards, that I, it might have even been in one of our you know, Star Trek as comfort food uh, selections from a couple weeks ago, too. We also did it on our, um, you know, why Star Trek needs stakes episode as well. Yeah, talking about some of these lower stakes stories. And Jarrett brought that one up. And I feel like since she did that, it ingrained in our minds a little bit. Because I think we've talked a lot about In the Cards over the years as well. Maybe because of revisiting it for that episode. Absolutely. So my picks uh, from five and a half years ago were uh, Who Watches the Watchers from TNG. The Shipment from Enterprise, and one of your favorites of all time, Cam, Tuvix from Voyager. Oh, I remember Tuvix. I think Tuvix was the episode art for that one, maybe, too. Um, it was yeah. indeed, yes, yeah. Yeah, that was our first um, dalliance with Tuvix, a character who would get brought up a lot over the uh, years that followed. I just find it fascinating that we had, like, three Voyager picks, and maybe it kind of speaks to of one of those trends that we've pointed out over the years in, in which if you go and check out lists of Voyager episodes, you know, top 10 lists, top 20 lists, there's very little consensus. You know, you, you'll see Scorpion a lot. You'll mm -hmm. see Year of Hell a lot. Beyond that, it's just it just seems like it's all over the place. And I think that's just interesting that we have so many selections from Voyager uh, between the two of us here. You know, you'll also see a lot of... Um... You know, people referencing things like Bride of Chi uh, Chaotica, episodes that have like a very iconic image attached to it. But you're all right. Like there's a lot of Voyager that feels like people don't reference it, despite the fact that I think the love for Voyager has only grown over the years. But it doesn't feel like you get that real examination of the entire trajectory of episodes the way you do, say, with TNG. When I'm going through TNG looking for hidden gems, it's like, gee, which famous episode can I pick? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's a fan edit out there of all the Chaotica moments cut together? Well, you tell me. You're the one that made it. Oh, fair enough. Actually, you know, I want the um, the Gothic Literature Holodeck uh, program, the fan edit of that that uh, Janeway was doing in season one and two. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, okay, so Cam, um, why don't you kick it off? What What is your uh, the, the first hidden gem that you want to share with us? Well, we were talking about Voyager, so why don't I just, you know, announce what my Voyager one was for this episode. That is the episode Bliss from season five. It was episode 14. And this is where the crew encounters a wormhole and it allows them to contact the Alpha Quadrant. It could be the pathway home. They start getting letters coming in, very positive letters. And it turns out to be basically a ruse of a telepathic uh, pitcher plant that is going to draw them in and eat the ship. And... This was one, I really had no memory of it, and I read the synopsis, and what drew me in was basically the hook of what the story was. I'm like, this seems like an episode I should really remember. So I was like, uh, you know what, I'll, I got an hour, I'll watch it and see if it's worth mentioning. And it is a 7 of 9 episode, but on top of that, 
it is a Moby Dick episode with an alien named uh, Kwati or Kwatai, um, played by W. Morgan Shepard, who is consumed with hunting this creature. And we get this fantastic combination of space madness, which you and I have tackled before, the whole concept of the crew all kind of going crazy due to some sort of space issue, but also a seven of nine journey um, that shows a lot of bonding with Naomi Wildman and an amazing character of the week. And I'm going to talk about an episode later on in a series famous for creating iconic characters of the week. But I think this alien monster hunter is incredible. Like I, when this episode was over, I was smacking my forehead. Why did I not remember this one? I have not seen this one since it aired, you know, 20 years ago, but how come we don't have a Star Trek spinoff of, you know, alien monster hunters just yet? Just with all the Moby Dick illusions throughout the entire franchise's, you know, 55-year history, it seems as if CBS, Viacom is making spinoffs of everything. Bring back W. Morgan Shepard, am I right? Oh, he was fantastic. He has the old grizzled sea captain kind of feel to him. And, um... I, you know, um, Star Trek has often done these episodes that are kind of unsettling or scary with space phenomena. You know, I think of Realm of Fear with the um, transporter stuff, right, with Barkley. And um, also the one, oh, what is it called where the aliens are doing surgery on the crew members of Voyager? Uh, is that um, Scientific Method? Yes, thank you. Scientific Method. Very unsettling, right? And this one has that same feel. It is almost like a space horror episode. And I thought it was really effective. It's got a great twist at the end because the um, alien creature basically can, can um, have people see hallucinations as to what they want reality to be. And so you have characters trying to solve a problem when they can't trust reality. That is so much fun to watch a character go through, especially Seven of Nine, um, who is someone who you would always expect to be kind of like Spock, able to see the logic in a situation. So is there a series that might lend itself to a similar sort of storytelling you know like i i'm thinking about the ones where you know it doesn't have to just be the alien monster sort of moby dick illusion that uh, you're referring to but that sense of you know going having a connection to home once again and i wonder is discovery kind of the best analog for you know planting this story into another series well it's definitely a concept i think works in almost every series um discovery yeah you know what you're all right like in sort of these newer season three onwards era of discovery it would work very well i think it could have also worked well maybe in enterprise season three when they're in the zindi war and yeah they're not necessarily that far away from home but because of the war they feel very isolated so maybe the communications back home would mean more okay yeah, no, I, I think this is a great pick, Cam. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that as far as hidden gems go, this will end up in the canon. We'll have, uh, I guess, uh, what, 18 of these episodes? Uh, <laughs> or I should say 15 of these episodes by the end. I'll We'll get another list on our blog just to tabulate everything by the end of this. That's a promise, people. <laughs> One interesting anecdote was I read that Kenneth Biller was not a fan of this episode and uh, felt it was too TOS. But I'm like... Yeah, maybe that's why I love it so much. <laughs> Give me more TOS, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, look, I'll kick it off with one from Deep Space Nine here. This is Civil Defense. And uh, hmm. coming from the Wikipedia uh, description, I'll just uh, 
tell you guys what it's about. Deep Space Nine is progressively locked down after O'Brien, Jake, and Cisco accidentally activate an automated Cardassian security program. The program's counterinsurgency measures keep escalating until it initiates an auto-destruct. Goldicott beams on board, but is unable to stop the self-destruct sequence. <laughs> Cam- I'm only laughing just hearing you mention Goldicott because he is comedic gold in this episode. <laughs> he, he's absolutely amazing, and like he comes in with uh, hubris, like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> he cannot <laughs> stop it, and he's stuck there. And even um, the, the thing is, like the program sees him trying to shut it down and assumes that means he's just given up on this insurgency and so they try to say like okay well we're going to execute you as well and so now he's being targeted by like all the uh, uh the disruptors beaming into replicators throughout this one the reason i like this one though the reason why this really stood out to me when i was watching it just maybe a week ago during my deep space nine rewatch though is you get to see all the characters in action mm-hmm. being smart and I like it when even if you're doing the right thing and you're doing the smart thing, things can still go wrong. And you're only the only thing that you can do next is just try to be that much smarter. And we see all the characters keep trying to go against this program that seems to have outsmarted them the entire time. And it's literally every single character is put in a different part of the station. They're paired up with a, a character or two. And you just get to watch the uh, the dynamics between the characters unfold as the episode progresses. That's something Star Trek does really well is create these disaster scenarios, whether it's on a ship or on a station, where you can just kind of pair characters off and watch them go through the process of solving a problem. You know, I always think of disaster from TNG as uh, probably the more famous example of this. Um, but I remember doing my rewatch at DS9 a while back, and... A lot of the titles of seasons one or two episodes of DS9 were kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't, this doesn't ring a bell. This was the case with this one. And I remember being so sucked in and Gul Dukat, I just thought he was like the comedy MVP of this episode. He's a villain who has so much pride that it's so much fun when you create a situation where he looks like a fool and has to kind of bluster his way out. The, the, the best moment though was when, you know, his efforts to contain it fail and he's been negotiating saying like well i'll save all your lives as long as i get to retake the station uh permanently and then all of a sudden another cardassian pops up on screen and it's a recording and he's like okay gal Dukat, you've clearly given up and now you will die too <laughs> and it's just like just mark alimo's like reactions to everything that's going on like i i okay alimo always seems to just absolutely adore Dukat the character. Mm-hmm. I often wonder how self-aware he is when the character is being played as a fool, though. And he, he does have a lot of those moments throughout Deep Space Nine. He does. Do you think Gul Dukat is the most... Uh, what's the word? Maybe the villain that leads to the most comedy? Because a lot of time when we talk about Gul Dukat, so much of it is like the darker stuff. Um, you know, obviously all the Bajoran um, issues of the past things like that and also all the stuff with the paw race like it's very kind of dark heavy material or that episode waltz um but i also feel like he's a character who lends himself often to very funny situations where he's kind of um has the the rug pulled out from under him uh either him or osira from star trek discovery Mm, comedy great osira yeah yeah 
like you could say like Q is fun, but he's not a villain in the same way. He's more of an antagonist or just a trickster character. There's not a yeah. lot of villains that are, I think, funny. Like, I don't think Khan is that funny. I bet there's like maybe some one-offs where you get like uh, a couple chuckles at their expense, you know, like maybe a, a Malon or something like that. But um, <laughs> Classic I, comedy. I, I, <laughs> I'm just guffawing every time I see the space garbage men show up on screen. Open mic night at the Malon Colony is something else. <laughs> Open Malon night. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Cam, if we had to like kind of transfer this episode into another series, what might you think would be best suited for it? Okay, so I can, on one hand, understand this scenario taking place in any Star Trek show. It's an alien environment and it all goes wrong. But I think it should also be an environment that our characters have some sort of connection to. I don't think it's good enough to just say, drop the crew of Voyager, you know, in an alien ship that starts misbehaving. I don't think that's as interesting. So, um, hmm, I'm trying to there think. Was, I, I'm just, you know, spitballing here, but there was that episode, I believe, in season two of Enterprise called Dead Stop. And I believe, mm, um, yeah. I believe it's actually directed by Roxanne Dawson, but you have them getting repairs at this kind of AI-powered space station that starts to infiltrate um, the NX-01. And mm. it's interesting, but I wonder if the, the real key to this is if there's an analogous kind of Ducat in any other series where they could really play off of kind of an antagonist who thinks he has it all solved and gets, you know, the rug pulled out from underneath him. And I think that's where a lot of the fun might come in if we put it into another series. I'm just wondering what series, and believe me, there is no, you know, kind of Ducat parallel or anything like that, but what other series might have a villain where that could work? Yeah, because I'm thinking of, like, Discovery with the upgrades to the AI of the ship. That could go wrong, for example. Like, you could get that similar kind of material there, but... I don't know that they have a villain figure. Like, I mean, Asira isn't around anymore, Tyler. She can't bring the comedy gold anymore. <laughs> well, what about, maybe not a villain, but what about somebody like an uneasy ally like Giorgio? Do you think she could fill in the Dukat role? If they could bring her back, yes. I would have also said, had we not... Well, I mean, off in... every single series has ended, so presumably <laughs> you could bring any character back in this kind of uh, game that we're playing here. Sure, sure. Um... It's almost too bad for this scenario that the ship is now in the far off future because I think like you could have brought back Harry Mudd for this episode, you know, and I think that could have been a lot of fun. Well, I I, I bet, like, I, I don't think we need to be quite contained to like, uh, it must be like a season four Discovery episode. Like what, sure. this could be like a one-off adventure in season two or or like a short trek or something, you know? Yeah, true enough. And you and I were big fans of Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. I think it would be a lot of fun to drop the Discovery crew in a situation with, you know, their computer going crazy and Harry Mudd is maybe coming in to try to take control, but then is quickly, uh, you know, has, you know, basically things flipped on him. I think that could be a lot of fun. Is he really, I, I guess, Ducat's only rival in terms of the villains that bring comedy with them? Would you say there's some comedy to Wayun? Yes. And yeah. even DeMar to a certain pathetic sort of degree as well Mm-hmm. yeah i'm going i wish they weren't all ds9 centric but when you start going through like voyager and you're thinking of like the board queen or maj kala not a lot of comedy gold there uh kess <laughs> yeah. 
or the reptilian Zindi commander for or Dolem, I think his name was, yeah. in Enterprise. Like, these are not hilarious characters. Uh, okay. Or the space Nazis from Enterprise? Oh, boy. <laughs> no, yeah. Not comedy for the right reasons. Uh, okay, okay. Well, uh, Cam, what's next on your list, sir? Okay, well, we were talking about Enterprise, and I thought it would be interesting to bring up the episode Fallen Hero from Season 1 of Enterprise. Uh, I find people tend to now, when they talk about Enterprise, and we do that probably just as much as anyone else, when we talk about Enterprise, we talk about Seasons 3 and 4, and how much promise the show had, and how great it had gotten by the, uh, you know, latter two seasons. But Season 1... You have this episode where they are going to escort a um, higher-up Vulcan who is accused of a crime. It's all a uh, smokescreen because she's investigating a criminal organization on a planet. Um, The actual mission itself isn't necessarily the most interesting thing. But what is interesting is the relationship between T'Pol and this Vulcan ambassador called Vlar, played by uh, Fionella Flanagan, who was, I believe, Data's mom robot character in Inheritance same actress and it's interesting to watch a relationship of sort of a um you know a little bit of a hero idea but filtered through vulcan psychology and it's one of the really good early looks inside kind of the worldview of t'pol do you remember this one Bert, by any chance uh no i i I don't think i've watched it since i honestly like uh when that episode would have aired like maybe 13 14 years ago because when i did my enterprise rewatch i really i picked it up season end of season two and then went onward from there so um but so this one though i I wonder if what you're drawn into is just kind of the the fleshing out of vulcan mythology which i think Mm -hmm. no show did it better other than maybe the original series than what we saw in enterprise and i think just adding all those building blocks to how we see the Vulcans in a very different place when we're in Broken Bow, they seem like a kind of a different alien species. And I think that, you know, rankled a lot of fans out there. But I think by the end, they kind of squared that peg and explained why, you know, this is not like this monolithic species that we've kind of become accustomed to. And I think they made them all the much richer. And an episode like this really does add to that uh, tapestry. For sure. And Vlar is one who's particularly interesting because we've talked about how those early Vulcans are you know, not the most friendly, approachable types, but she is quite unconventional and they're preparing a room for her. And she's like, oh, like, why is it so sparse? You know, I want to talk to the crew. What you... And it's T'Pol is now the one who seems the more like the more rigid Vulcan compared to this more seasoned character who kind of brings her out of her shell a bit. So I found that fun to watch. Like it, it is really insightful in terms of Vulcan mythology, but also where T'Pol stands in the in terms of where her journey's going, because T'Pol is very much like those Vulcans you were saying, the ones who aren't the most likable at the start, considering where she's going to be by the end. And you see that this character is a little bit of a preview of that. How well does this episode work as a standalone versus working as an episode where you know how much appreciation you're going to get for a character like T'Pol moving forward, as well as the Vulcan mythology that's, you know, being developed here? I would say it actually works quite well as a standalone. It has sort of a um, thriller aspect to it that I think is very effective. It's not like one of the all-time great Star Trek episodes in that uh, in that right, but it is a solid episode. Uh, it, it, but it is the character stuff that I think really does inform why it is sort of that extra special hidden gem. And I looked up, I was just curious, because again, no one references this episode really. And I noticed like it aired in the middle between Vox Sola and Desert Crossing. 
like two totally forgettable episodes. <laughs> so I feel like this was kind of that point where, it, again, this is the 23rd episode of season one. Fans are probably not super into what Enterprise is selling at this point. And I think this one just kind of fell by the wayside because of that. Do you think it helped at all that uh, Trip was wearing a Hawaiian shirt throughout? <laughs> well, that could only help. Um, I think what, what this one is also worth revisiting, and I recommend this for ironic laughs, is it opens with some of that patented early Star Trek Enterprise sex talk where the characters are talking about sex? whether the humans <laughs> where the humans are a little too pent up and T'Pol is concerned. Uh, well, this is definitely making on to my hidden gem uh, list then in that case, Cam. <laughs> I feel like we could just have a podcast week where we just air clips of this Star Trek sexy talk and it would be complete gold and we could just take the week off. <laughs> what series do you think would have... A, the most sexy talk, and B, the best sexy talk. Hmm. I feel like there's a fair amount in Enterprise. Because um, there's, like, bits, for sure, in TNG. I wonder if the TNG stuff's funnier, though, whereas the Enterprise gets a little, I don't know, a little icky. Well, I, I was thinking best as in, like, oh, I see what they're going for, or they're being kind of mature about it or they're just trying to treat sex like a normal thing that you know uh people do i i think deep space nine is probably the one that kind of handles you know sex the best out of all the shows probably yeah no i agree with you in terms of like a mature handling it's the closest i think we're still waiting for the star trek show that really does it properly though <laughs> well here's looking at you strange new worlds that's right. So what franchise or what Star Trek series could you transport this story over to? Do you think it's just, it seems so obvious, but do you think it would be, say, uh, the original series just with, you know, Spock in that T'Pol role, like having this ambassador that he kind of idolizes? Or do you think it could just be any character? It doesn't have to be a Vulcan. It could just be anyone that uh, they idolize. Or I, I just think there's something interesting about kind of the the rigid feelings or you know the suppressed feelings that the vulcans have to deal with throughout this i agree with you but the thing about spock was he does have that human side so i feel like he is a little unconventional and that's always ma what makes him stand out versus DePaul very much wants to belong to the norm and this is a little bit of an outsider character saying hey there's a lot of stuff out there that's worth exploring i, I wonder if maybe it would be more interesting it they kind of did this anyway but with odo on DS9 and um, his encounters with other changelings. Oh, I thought you were going to suggest his previous idol would have been like a Cardassian security officer. I'm just like, uh, that'd be <laughs> awkward. That or like it's Dr. Mora taking Odo out in the town and showing him how to party. Well, do you think we kind of got that mentor aspect a little bit with a character like Loss from uh, Season 7 episode Chimera? That's what I was thinking, yeah. Or you could... Yeah even have little bits with the female changeling and showing Odo about changeling sexuality. Like there's aspects of that too. So it's sort of something I guess they've touched on before Enterprise even got there, but it would have been interesting to have an episode going back to what you were saying initially, just of the original series where you had someone who was kind of a idol of Spock coming across and Spock having to kind of maintain his, um, Vulcan stature opposite characters like McCoy who are kind of looking for those cracks but also him being perhaps influenced by a hero of his I think that could be interesting 
do you think Shatner, if he was in that uh, to Paul role, he would have insisted that the idol slash mentor would have been an actor who was like five years younger than him, just to make <laughs> Shatner seem even younger? That and they would be riding a horse. I, I like it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Cam, I'm going to go into a bit of a more unconventional uh, pick here. One that you might not suspect, but I think one that we should, you know, think about here. Uh, very recent in the canon of Star Trek, but this episode, it kind of helped, you know, turn me around. Or not necessarily turn me around, but it flipped the switch for me with one of the recent series. And that is Cupid's Errant Arrow from mm. Star Trek Lower Decks. I know, you know, uh, episodes like Crisis Point and No Small Parts, the the final two, uh, they get a lot of attention. That's what a lot of people are still referencing for obvious reasons here. But this was episode, I believe, five in the inaugural season. And it really felt as if the show was clicking for me in which we have Boimler. Uh, his girlfriend is going to come visit him for the first time. And nobody can figure out why she is this super smart super gorgeous woman who's into this really strange boimler it just makes no sense at all until we find out that there's a parasitic love bug attached to his neck and that's why she's fallen for him um cam this one had the most consistent number of laughs like laugh out loud laughs for me in this and it really felt as if like it was Lower Decks coming into its own, knowing what it could realize here. And I think there's also potential that we could discuss for, like, what series would be great if we tried to apply this to another show. Yeah, I think there's some really fun opportunities there. I remember watching Lower Decks the first time through and enjoying a lot of the first half, but also wondering, were we going to hit heights here? Because early Star Trek, as we've so often talked about, is um, sometimes a little down the middle of the road. And it felt like this was the episode that kind of changed the direction. And we got some very funny episodes to come, as ones you mentioned. Also, Sarita's, I thought was a really funny episode. Um, but this one had, uh, I think, yes, that real spark of comedic genius. And there was some very funny character-centric Boimler moments that provided insight into a character that, you know, like Discovery has been very shaky sometimes about dealing with its characters from here and there. Whereas I feel like Lower Decks really nailed down their characters very well and knew how to find comedy within those personalities almost instantly. And this is probably the best Boimler story we got in season one. For sure. And listeners, I am so attuned to Cam's settings on the Universal Translator. Um, I think, Cam, when you said Cerritos, you meant the episode Veritas, right? I did. Where? Did, oh, that's the ship. Where, where do they get Cerritos from? What does that mean? Uh, the USS Cerritos is the name of the ship. Oh my God, you are right. Yes, there you thank go. you. There you go. But yeah, Veritas was like a, a funny one as well. But I think for me, it, it's the Boimler character dynamic that you alluded to that it, it, that really sells you. And, and I think the, the commonality between all these episodes that we've been naming so far is that these are like character-driven things. And maybe that's why it's not so easy to just kind of you know, transfer it onto another series, but they work really well because you were invested in what's going on in these characters' lives. And look, if you can throw on some like legit laughs, that actually just gave me all this more confidence about what the series was trying to touch on. The other thing, Cam, is I think this is the first one that we got where it didn't end with this really fast-paced 
action sequence where they try to wrap everything up on Lower Decks in the course mm-hmm. of about like three and a half minutes, where I remember the first couple episodes, you and I w- would kind of discuss like, huh, that that's, I, I'm not even sure exactly what happened, but here we are at the end of it. And this was the first one where I, I don't think they actually had to do it. I, I, I think we got to see Boimler like naked at the end or something like that, like something funny, like that was the climax. <laughs> that climax, huh? Um... <laughs> Yeah. Um, now, this is a really fun one to apply to the other shows um, because this conceit could work for any of them. So I think it's maybe more fun if we went show by show and determined who is the character with the <laughs> unlikely, unlikely love interest and who is the character who's very um, annoyed with suspicion about the whole scenario like Mariner is in this episode. Okay. So, okay. I, I Can I go first? Sure. If you want to go ahead. Yeah, sure. The, the original series, um, I would love to see Spock, like, just it, uh, on Cloud 9. People would be, like, really weirded out as to why Spock seems to be so excited about having a girlfriend. And I think, out of everyone, McCoy would not be able to wrap his head around <laughs> why anybody would be interested in that Vulcan, that green-blooded Vulcan. Yeah, because I thought initially it would be very funny if it was McCoy that, like, they were really obsessed with. But, um... At the same time, I don't think Spock would care. You know what I mean? Like Spock may spot the uh, the situation as being illogical, but what are you going to get? You're going to get an eyebrow raise versus if it's Spock, McCoy is turning into blustering comedy gold through the whole episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, TNG Cam, uh, you go first. Uh, who do you think? Uh, mm. I-, I think there's a very obvious pick here, but uh, you tell me. Is he an engineer, perhaps? <laughs> yes, perhaps he is. So who's suspicious of uh, Jordy having a girlfriend who's really smart, really beautiful, and actually really does seem to like him? Okay, now there's two ways to go about this. One is you're picking one of the heroes of the show, whether it's a Riker, a Troy, a Worf, whatever. Or is it like a Wesley or a Barkley? I thought it was a a Wesley character because we already yeah. had that dynamic in the episode Sarek when um like <laughs> Wesley like got really angry because of the telepathic disease and shouted at Jordy you can only get a girlfriend on the holodeck like that to me is kind of the dynamic that I was picturing in my head yeah that could be so amazing like why are we not doing that short trek <laughs> okay bring back 50 year old uh, will wheaton uh and uh, you know 70 year old uh lavar burton uh in between those jeopardy guest hosting spots well like lavar burton said he expects to be back on picard probably not this season though so maybe that's the story they'll write for him for season three picard <laughs> I, I i can't wait till they uh get to um put all that same data vfx on his face and actually i think um lavar burton has actually aged uh probably best out of all the uh the cast members he might be uh he's up there for sure yeah okay cam uh deep space nine uh who might be the uh ideal ones to uh apply the boimler uh method here hmm i feel like this one is a little tougher it it might be a um situation where I'm thinking earlier in DS9's run and someone falls madly in love with Rom and it drives Quark crazy. I had Quark in my mind, but I was thinking like, what if somebody is over the moon over Quark and Odo just can't figure it out? 
Mm, that could definitely work as well. I just wonder though, would would Odo be prone to sort of the obsessive snooping about this the way that Mariner was? Well, he is a security officer. He is, but I Odo's very controlled. Hmm. And you I I guess maybe what you're also getting is that you wonder how much Odo would even care about Quark's love life. Yes. I mean, it would be amazing if he cared a lot. And that was an ongoing arc on DS9 was his great obsession with Quark's love life. But um, I mean, I do think it could work because the show writers uh, like to have fun with their characters. You know, maybe when Odo became um, a solid for a while and had to learn to kind of operate as a solid, that could be one of his earlier adventures. Well, okay. I think we're on the right path with Quark, but here's why I don't think it would work with Rom, because we already had him, you know, uh, get married to like a, a smart, beautiful woman. And yeah. Quark seemed okay with that. So I wonder if it's actually um, somebody's obsessed with Quark and it's actually Julian, the ladies man who just can't let it go. Mm, I could totally see that. Yeah. And because Bashir has that sort of younger man energy, I could see that sort of maybe jealous streak or something along those lines. Okay, okay. Uh, Voyager Cam, I wonder, is this another Harry Kim episode? <laughs> oh, please God, no. <laughs> Not another uncomfortable um, romantic Harry Kim episode. Um, but it is tough to figure out characters who would be um, go through that sort of storyline on Voyager. So, somebody's obsessed with Neelix? Well, I mean, uh, that would fascinate me to no end. Um but who's the character? You know what? I could see it played like someone's super obsessed with Neelix, maybe. And it's more like Tom Paris and Harry Kim are just like eyebrow raising about it a lot. I could see that. Okay. Okay. Um, jumping over to Enterprise. Uh, I think there are fewer choices here. But do you think you would have to be, you know, uh, Boimler as Trip? And Mariner asked Paul, or is she just not going to care as much? I don't think she cares as much. I know there's the episode where he accuses her of being jealous a bit, but that's a big difference between, uh, you know, jealousy and what you have with Mariner there. Um, and I don't think uh, T'Pol would have the energy that Mariner has in that sort of scenario. Would, uh, what if it was uh, Shran and uh, he could, or, or, or... I wonder if Flox might uh, work in this situation as well. Oh, Flox could be interesting. Yeah. It's funny, when you think about the Enterprise crew, they don't seem as um, likely to, I don't know, occupy either role. Like, I feel like the other shows were a lot easier than this one. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, I know the answer. Uh, somebody's obsessed with Mayweather, and everyone on the ship can't figure out why anyone cares about Mayweather. Oh, sad but true. Yeah. Uh, Discovery Cam. Um, I don't know. I, I'm picturing Saru in the Boimler role here. Uh, yeah, that would be interesting. I, I can't imagine um, Saru in that role. So right there, that grabs my attention because it's not something I would have thought of. Who would be obsessing over Saru's love life at this point? <laughs> would it be Giorgio? Oh my god. I love that. I love the idea of Giorgio, a character who's usually off following her own sort of journey on her own kind of missions, suddenly becoming obsessed with Saru's love life. That could okay. be really funny. She just couldn't let it go. She just could yeah. not. And you can totally picture some of the like dry lines that Michelle Yeoh would be uh, throwing out there. Like something about eating Kelpians, right? Exactly. Sure. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, I guess we're obligated to do this, Cam. I don't know. Star Trek Picard. Um, uh, so, okay, I know. It has to be Elnor uh, is the Boimler. And <laughs> does anyone care about Elnor? Anyone? I don't, I don't know. Uh, um, I was going to say the um, the Boimler is Bruce Maddox. And, and then the person in love with them was Agnes Gerardi. And the audience is... Okay. Uh, <laughs> the audience is Mariner. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> All right, sir. What's next on your list of, I was about to say uncut gems, but that is that fantastic Adam Sandler movie, but hidden gems, sir. Yes. So it's an episode I've actually brought up a few times in, you know, probably the last year or so. And that is All Our Yesterdays, the um, 23rd episode of season three of TOS. And I bring this one up because I think people tend to dismiss season three TOS. If you're going to find hidden gems in TOS, that tends to be where they are. We talked about Cloudminders, as we said. This is one I think is a really, really good episode of Star Trek. It has a great high concept where the crew goes to a planet that's about to be, you know, evaporated by a supernova. And the planet's population has disappeared into the past or the time portal. And Kirk gets separated from Spock and Bones, and they both get sent off, both teams, into separate time periods. Kirk's in 17th century England, and um, Spock and Bones are in the Ice Age. And it's a great character story. We get to see fantastic Spock stuff where, because he's sent back to a prehistoric Ice Age, he starts de-evolving as a Vulcan. So the passions of, of the Vulcans start coming out of him. He doesn't know how to control them. So you get a great relationship there with him and McCoy because there's a love interest and McCoy is having to navigate this very tricky situation. It's the type of material you don't get late in TOS where a lot of the stories feel mm, kind of alien of the week or just honestly kind of <laughs> kind of flat where it's, boy, an alternate enterprise and one of our crew members is wandering around the ship for an hour. This one feels like it has genuine imagination. And I think you could have some real fun with this concept of, you know, this futuristic library that involves time portals. It is just a great concept for an episode. And one of the things I think TOS does better than maybe any other show is create an iconic character who only shows up once. And they have one here in Mr. Atos, who's the librarian, a character who I've never forgotten since seeing this episode the first time. It's also notable, I remember when we did our episode on, um, I think it was ranking the finales or talking about the finales of Star Trek, how, like, why was this not the finale versus um, Turnabout Intruder? And I actually came across a little bit of information I had not realized before that the star date of this story takes place after Turnabout Intruder. Oh, really? So you can even, yeah, so you can even make the argument, this is the final adventure of that crew before we launch into the movies. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I love that. Uh, it, I like kind of trying to fix things in my head canon, and I would just like to think of this as the series finale moving forward. It makes complete sense. And so I wonder if there was some rejiggering um, when they were putting together the, you know, the final run of episodes. Who knows? But uh, yeah, like this is a fantastic episode and it feels like something you could have dropped easily into season one or two and fans would champion it a lot more. Is there a particular series in which it would be good if we switched the uh, penultimate and uh, final episodes with each other, Cam? Mmm, boy. I think there's one uh, in particular. <laughs> Enterprise? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably the only one, right? I think I'm just pretty trying to good think about, otherwise. 
Yeah, I like that kind of gives us the sort of closure that we're looking for. All the other ones did like find jobs save for the original series and Enterprise. So I think that would be kind of the, the go-to. Because even um, Counterclock Incident ending the animated yeah. series feels very appropriate. So you can't even say you would switch around those. No, I think this is a really great example. Maybe that should be the new canon of subspace transmissions. All our yesterdays is the finale to TOS. Cam, I am totally down to you know envision that uh, going forward. Um, as for like a, a the episode story, I, like does this work with kind of a different crew uh to a certain degree because it's just that strong triumvirate here and i wonder is enterprise the most obvious one i think it has to be um it has to involve an alien species that we can watch them de-evolve like there's some intrigue there so i think it's either going to be to paul on enterprise you might be able to do something with wharf though on uh you know ds9 or tng we did see him in that arachnoid suit from genesis and season seven of tng Mm-hmm. Well, like, it could be really fun if we had Worf, like, turning back, you know, maybe going through phases, and we could have Worf turning back into a uh, TOS era Klingon. He's just spitting poison uh, from his glands as he's dressed yeah, as a 1960s Klingon, right? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Also, I, I, I'm I, sorry, it was not Worf who was arachnoid in Genesis. It was Barkley who was the arachnoid, and I'm not exactly yeah. sure what Worf was supposed to be other than a really scary monster. I mean, to be honest, when you said arachnoid, I was like, well, Barkley was a spider, but to be honest, I don't know what Worf was, so he could have been arachnoid. I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, he, like, I, it's mostly the, the po poison sacks on his uh, cheek that uh, re really stuck in my memory when he uh, hit Crusher with that bomb there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a kind of high concept story. You could kind of apply to any of the shows, but I, I do think the key to it is that de-evolving alien of the show so maybe even if you didn't want to use T'Pol because well it's kind of lazy Vulcan to Vulcan like maybe there's something you could do with the Denobulan you know like flocks like maybe there's some element of prehistoric um Denobulans that would be interesting I, to delve into it, yeah he as he devolves he gets fewer and fewer spouses he goes from having eight to seven <laughs> eventually it's just like a uh yeah a, a regular sort of uh two-person monogamous relationship <laughs> could there be something to the ferengi in sending quark in this scenario back in time his ears get bigger his head gets more pronounced i think that would act the makeup that you could uh have with that that would be amazing to see mm -hmm. yeah so i think this one is fairly applicable it just depends on which alien species you think would be interesting to see an earlier version of talaxians man Mm, that's the that's the home run episode right there is the Talaxian mythology episode. Yeah. <laughs> Cam, uh, look, you kicked it off with talking about an episode that had a lot of echoes of the original series. And, well, I'm going to do the same. And this one has a very direct echo uh, with the original series. It, it, almost a prequel of sorts here. And this is Observer Effect from Season 4 of Enterprise. Uh, the description here from Wikipedia says... This episode sees alien entities test the Enterprise crew by observing their reactions to a deadly silicon-based infection. Actual first contact with these aliens, the Organians, would occur about a century later during the events of the original series Star Trek episode Errand of Mercy, which I think Errand of Mercy is just like 
uh, one of those kind of iconic classic episodes. You know, the Klingons are involved here. It's in our memories. And I think you have to be kind of confident about your story that you're going to tell if you want to do kind of a prequel to that. And Observer Effect, it gave a lot to do uh, for characters like, say, Reed or Mayweather, who had been kind of neglected. And they also just brought up a, a lot of those dilemmas that you have. And if you are in a Kobayashi Maru sort of situation, a no-win situation, how do you actually get out of it? And it is very clear that that's what the Organians were trying to create. And there was no solution for the crew. And that sort of storytelling usually kind of irks me in what you take away agency from the main characters, but ultimately comes down to, you know, the negotiating skills of our, our crew here and just explaining like why you can't just kill everybody off and why it's not going to make sense and actually makes the Organians think like, okay, well, maybe in about a hundred years, we'll be ready to make like actual first contact now that we've kind of wiped their memories of what went down here today. Mm -hmm. And you were saying, you know, these aren't necessarily the episodes that you would be drawn to a lot of the time because of the lack of agency. So I think it is um, that much more of a feather in the cap of Observer Effect that it works so well. It shows that the writers were able, were able to find a way around the limitations of this premise and make it really compelling. I, I wonder, though, if the reason this one doesn't get the attention that some of the later Enterprise episodes do is because a lot of them are delving into TOS mythology, but I wonder if the Organians are a little too obscure for people to latch on to the way they do with like the Orions and Bound or, you know, the Klingon arc, the Vulcan arc, all that sort of stuff. It's also, you're going to have to just recognize them by name. It, they don't have like this distinctive look. And especially if they're being, like if they're in the bodies, they're jumping back and forth between bodies of different crew members. You know, that th that is what I can kind of wrap my head around why this isn't as maybe a iconic a, a look for them, right? And also there's a lot of godlike aliens on the original series. There's, the, you know, the Metrons. and There's so many of them. And they all kind of have a similar ability on the show. And the Organians kind of blend together in my head with a lot of those. Errand of Mercy is obviously such a standout episode. That's what allows me to keep it straight. But Errand of Mercy is also not an episode title that I think is on the tongue of a lot of Star Trek fans. It doesn't have the name value of, you know, Arena, Space Seed, episodes like that. So maybe that's a factor as well. Do you think that this one would work in the original series era? Like, you know, take the Organian factor out of it, or maybe not, I don't know. But Or, or do you think this one would be, if we're going to put it in another franchise, it'd actually be fun to follow up a hundred years after that, for that encounter with the Organians on the original series? I think TNG could have done this episode very well. And I know they would have been maybe more likely to do this in like season one, you know, when you had like Naked Now, where they're kind of riffing on TOS episodes, had TNG been more willing to embrace um, TOS mythology over the course of the series, you know, even going move, moving beyond just using Sarek or Spock and doing things like this, I think you could have had like a really good, you know, season six, season five TNG episode dealing with this story. And I would actually like to see Picard talking to the Arganians. I, Picard didn't get to talk to enough godlike aliens. We had Q, but we didn't have a lot of Picard talking to the classic TOS booming voice god aliens. And I think this could have been a good example of a pretty, um, you know, gripping story that would also allow Picard to have a philosophical back and forth with an alien species. I can't believe you're dismissing Nigillum so easily, Cam. Oh my god, Nigillum. 
That's right. You're, you know what? I am completely wrong. That was a pretty, that is also a very TOS y type of alien. But yeah, like Picard didn't get to do that a lot. And he seems like a character designed, just by being the defender of humanity, designed to talk to godlike aliens. I think this is, yeah, 100% like kind of a Picard role that would have worked well if we had Observer Effect, you know, that uh, 100 years after Aaron of Mercy. I think that would have been a lot of fun. Uh, Cam, why don't I go through our list here? And uh, again, listeners, I will post a blog um, in the coming week. It should be, well, it will be up by the time you listen to this episode. And we'll have all 15 of the episodes that we've done over the last five and a half years. So Cam, you went with Bliss Fallen Hero, and All Our Yesterdays. My picks were Civil Defense, Cupid's Errant Arrow, and Observer Effect. So we'll have a master list with all of our picks uh, that we had uh, with Jarrah Hodge as well. And uh, Cam, yeah, this is a... We should not spend five and a half years in between our uh, Hidden Gem series, right? Well, we so often will try to come up with topics for this podcast where we can discuss episodes we haven't talked about a billion times. Because it's like, how many more times can we discuss the events of Best of Both Worlds, for example? <laughs> yeah. Or, or Darmok. Um, <laughs> this is a great excuse to talk about episodes that there's a real good chance I would have never, ever brought up Bliss over the course of this podcast <laughs> had I not revisited it for this episode. Well, Cam, you might say that it was a bliss going through this list. <laughs> Of course. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash pod. Let us know your favorite Hidden Gem Star Trek episodes, um, because I need some help preparing for the next version of this uh, podcast topic. So uh, keep them coming. That, that's why it took us five and a half years. <laughs> Those five emails took a long time to show up. <laughs> Okay, so Tyler, what do we do next time? Cam, we have been thinking about this for a while, and we are going to have a fun way of discussing the ultimate villains here on Star Trek. We are going to do the ultimate villains draft. Cam, be prepared. There might be some bloodletting that unfolds next week. Mm, This one is going to be contentious, I hope, for people, because I think... You and I have some opinions on villains that aren't necessarily shared by everyone out there, Osira. <laughs> or Red Angel, you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eh, not really a villain, but still. <laughs> okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V is in Vlar Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N, as in Nagilum is a hidden gem of a alien entity. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.